you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Let's open up to Luke chapter 3. We'll have it on the screen if you don't have it with you. Or you could download our church app. Just search for Renovatus in the market and you can get to the Bible from there as well. Uh, so glad to be with you. Um, just give everyone an update. My father is still in the hospital. We're uh, uh, seeing some improvements and I, um, we are hopeful that he will go home this week, perhaps even today. However, he will go home different than he came in. And so there'll be some challenges at home as well. So just remember, continue to remember us in prayer. And on that note, I just want to say thanks to everyone who's called and texted and, and messaged and um, all those things. I haven't been able to respond to everyone as quickly as I'd like to. Some of you I may have not responded at all because I just got overwhelmed. But I want you to know that uh, everything you've sent, everything you've said has meant so much to us. And uh, my family and I have felt very loved and very well pastored by this church in this season. So thank you very much for that. Uh, on that note, um, I will be, my family and I will, will be taking a vacation this week. Uh, it was planned a year ago. Um, so uh, we will be in the Bahamas for a few days and at Disney for a few days. And so um, we're flying out on the 17th and we'll be back on the 24th. Uh, in my absence, you will uh, have the opportunity and privilege to hear from your new youth minister, Zach Smith, will be preaching from a preaching for us next Sunday. I'm actually a little upset he gets to preach on uh, water to wine, and uh, it's like one of my favorite things to preach. Um, so uh, he gets to preach from John next week. I got, I've, I've been discombobulated, and I misspoke last week when I said we have two more weeks of not doing Luke. No, we have... A week of not doing Luke last week. This week we're going to do Luke, and then next week we have uh, the wine to water, and then it goes back to Luke So for, for, for a good while. Um, but we are in Luke today, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3. And uh, I want to read this text first, and then I want to share some things with you uh, that I shared a little bit about um, when we did our Christmas Carol sing-along a few weeks ago, just to kind of set some context. And uh, from there we'll dive into the text. Now, your le the lectionary, if, if you've been looking at it, Luke chapter 3, um, the lectionary has the reading being verse 15 through 17, and then skipping verses 18 through 20, and then coming back around to 21 and 22. Uh, I'm going to read the whole thing as a unit because that little insertion by Luke actually means a lot in regards to what we're going to talk about today. As the people were filled with expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. You have no idea how long I've waited to say thong in church. And there we go. <laughs> he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's just one of those things like you never hear that word in church and here it is right in the scriptures, you know. Um, funny story. I'll pick on my dad since he's in the hospital. Um, a while back, 
we were having a Thanksgiving meal, and for some reason, my dad kept calling the tongs and the salad thongs. And he was like, well, somebody please pass me the thongs. And we were like, no, dude, it's tongs. And for whatever reason, he just couldn't get it. Um, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the weed into his granary. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, and this is the part not in the lectionary, so with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying... The heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, <clears throat> You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. I don't want to set this context, context every time we preach from Luke, so I'm going to do it a couple of times uh, in the beginning here, just so we understand a little bit about what Luke is doing with the Jesus narrative. You have three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of them written in different times, Mark most likely being the earliest. And um, we preached a lot in Mark last week, so this goes without saying. Many of you have heard me say it over and over again. Mark is the apocalyptic gospel, right? Like, it's the gospel that was written at a time when the religious institution was falling. And not only was the religious institution falling, but there was a lot of social and political upheaval at the same time. Uh, which incidentally um, tends to be the case historically, if you look at it. Um, a lot of times those uh, institutions and the political structure get very intertwined as they were in uh, First Temple Judaism. And so when one begins to shake, the other begins to shake. And, and so you begin to see this upheaval that takes place both, both on the side of the religious institution as well as the nation and, and the society at large. You see this in the prophets, you see this throughout the narratives of the scripture. Uh, so Mark's gospel is very raw. Mark's gospel gives us a Jesus that we can relate to during the apocalypse. Uh, Luke's gospel is a later gospel. Um, some date it as late as 100 CE. I, I don't know that it's that late. But you're looking at about a decade or two after uh, the temple has fallen in Jerusalem. And you have a couple of things that are happening as a result of that. First of all, you have kind of like you know Judaism itself recapitulating Judaism and trying to find its way through what it means to be a Jew now that we no longer have a temple and we no longer have a religious institution. And remember, with that temple falling goes a couple of institutions or a couple of groups of people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, and even the scribes to a degree. Um, there's a change in, the, in what they do and how they function and even their necessity, which is why in John's gospel, which is written around 100 uh, CE, uh, doesn't really mention the Pharisees that much at all. Uh, they're in there a couple of times in passing. Uh, Nicodemus is named as a Pharisee and a couple of other times. But uh, John just refers to them as the Jews. And when you talk about the Jews, he's not talking necessarily about the entire race of Jewish people as much as he's talking about the Jewish leaders, the Jewish aristocracy that was in power at the time of Jesus' life. Um, Luke then is written, you know, after this time where everybody's trying to find their way, there's also within this period of time a movement of Gentiles that have come into the church 
early on, but after the temple falls, begin to kind of move out of the, of the church. And the reason being because if Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, which is the way he was imagined, um, even by Gentile um, believers, that's what they believe, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, early Christianity was really just another sect of Judaism. It wasn't like its own thing until after the temple falls, you begin to see that, that chasm grow and you've got Jews and Christians and, and that's kind of some of the early stages of that, that division. What you have is you have a, a lot of Gentiles who say, well, if, if the Jewish Messiah couldn't even save Judaism, then why are we part of it? You know, what, what's the point? What, what's the use? How, how do we fit into the narrative of the world and of our own lives in a world where the institution is now fallen, where, the, where the, the, the religious institution, the temple, all those things that was built around that, where those things no longer exist? And so Luke emerges you know, a couple of decades after that and begins to address some of those things, right? Uh, so if Mark is the apocalyptic gospel, we might think of Luke as the post-apocalyptic gospel. If Mark is the gospel that gives us a Jesus that we can relate to, and it's the same Jesus, by the way, it's just different perspectives on the same story. But if Mark's gospel gives us a Jesus we can relate to in the apocalypse, when everything is falling down around us, Luke gives us a Jesus, a narrative of Jesus, maybe I should say. Luke gives us a narrative of Jesus to help us along the way after the fact. After everything has fallen down and it ain't coming back up, right? It's not going to be rebuilt. It's not going to be restructured. The religious institution is gone and done. How then do we think about Jesus and how does it relate to this new world? How do we follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus, maybe? Uh, in a world absent of this religious institution that Jesus was once very heavily connected with. And I think some of you, already, the gears are already turning, right? At least I hope so. Uh, that I think there is some relevance for us today in our culture and in our context. Because in many ways we are also seeing religious and social and political upheaval uh, and transitions. And we're seeing um, a lot of ways in which the church has unhealthily wed itself to the power structures and the political structures of our world. And we're seeing again how, because of that, um, in many ways, the prominence and the impact of the church is now being questioned by those, both within the church and without the church, who are saying, what does all this mean now, right? Like, what do we do with Jesus now? And if you're someone who, in the midst of all that, has went through personal deconstruction, and you've kind of walked away from some of the, some of the um, things that you were indoctrinated with early in your life, or, or when you first became a Christian... Maybe you're at a place in life where you've looked at that and you say, well, I believed all that stuff because I was told that, but now I'm questioning it and, and I'm working through all of that. This is a great gospel because it provides for you a Jesus that is kind of after the fact, right? Like after the religious institution and everything you've ever known has come down, how then do you appropriate and think about Jesus? Where does he belong in that picture? So in many ways, I think we'll find Luke, Luke helpful in those ways. Uh, so if we, if we read Luke as a post-apocalyptic gospel, one of the things we have to do then is we have to compare Luke and the way he tells the narratives to the way Mark tells the narratives, in particular Mark and, and Matthew some as well. Um, but we have to pay attention to the way, or the, difference, the differences in the way in which he tells the, the, the stories about Jesus. So today we're going to talk about Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism. Now for some reason, the baptism of Jesus is one of those stories that has always been very vivid in my mind. And, and I was thinking this week, was it, was it a movie I watched or was it like some kind of video I saw early in life or at some point in life that gave me this very vivid imagery of Jesus getting baptized? 
And I, I, I think I remember where I first got the imagery of Jesus' baptism. So I was raised Church of God, and our Sunday school literature, um, we used to use uh, Pathway Press, Sunday school literature. Anybody else grew up on that stuff? Okay. And so uh, we used to get, at the end of every Sunday school lesson, we would get a little comic strip. It was called Pix Papers. Let me tell you all something. I was all about some Pix Papers. Okay. Uh, I went to Sunday school just to get Pix Papers. <laughs> Uh, in fact, years later, I found out they took all those papers and they turned them into like a big graphic novel of, of the scriptures. And uh, they sold those as a books and I bought one of them at a general assembly one year. And uh, I loved it. And I, I loved it because um, growing up, I read a lot of comics. I loved graphic novels more so than I did, you know, other reading. Uh, I love graphic novels, still do. In fact, to wind down, um, yesterday I was reading a Captain America graphic novel just to kind of zone out. Don't judge me. Um, so uh, these Pix papers every Sunday would give us a comic uh, drawing, retelling of the biblical story. And in the one that, um, that, that, that talked about Jesus' baptism, there was this image of like everyone standing around, right, this, this body of water and Jesus coming down the pathway all by himself and, and while Jesus is coming, making his way to the body of water, John is telling everyone. It's like, it's like he's introducing him. You know, there's one coming after me who's greater than I. I, I will not even, of course, we didn't use thong because that would have been, whoo, like scandalous. Uh, who I can't even unloose his shoe, right, from his feet. Um, the, straps from his, the, the straps on the shoes from his feet. I, I'm not even worthy to do that. And, and then, you know, you go to the next frame of the comic and Jesus is getting closer. And then Jesus gets in the water and everybody's watching in, in awe. And Jesus is baptized. He comes out and God speaks and, and the dove descends and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, but in my mind, Jesus' baptism was like the spotlight being on Jesus during this time, right? Like it was a scheduled day or something. Like everybody come out today, we're going to baptize the Messiah. And we're going to unveil him. But Luke's narrative actually uh, paints a very different picture of Jesus' baptism. The language there, he's baptized along with everybody else. And also Jesus was baptized after everyone else had been baptized, or as even everyone else had been baptized. Um, these differences from that image, and even these differences we find between uh, the other tellings of the baptism narrative, and by the way, the lectionary uses, goes in order, A, B, C, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're in year C, that's why we get Luke's version. But uh, you begin to compare those differences, and you get a very different image of what might have taken place on the day that Jesus was baptized. So I want to spend this morning kind of going over some of those, or at least talking about some of those things, and drawing some connections that I drew, um, and, and hopefully that uh, through that we, we can find some meaningful ways to imagine the Jesus narrative in a post-apocalyptic world. Um, so l l let's look at it. The first thing that jumps off the page to me in this particular telling of this story is that there was an expectation, and you see this somewhat in the others, but that there was this expectation um, on behalf of the people that John might be the Messiah. They're having revival, y'all. Like, like when you read this, this is a group of people gathering around the Jordan, hearing John preaching, and John has started like a full-out legitimate revival. People are coming, even the cynics are coming, the critics are coming, 
John addresses them in his preaching, people who are trying to figure out what's going on, what, what's happening out here. Um, they're coming out, people who came out and didn't want to be part of it are getting pulled into the movement. They're repenting of their sins. They're getting baptized. And, and, and there's this new air of like, God is doing something new among us. Remember, John is the first prophet we've seen in a, in a couple of centuries, at least a couple of centuries. Some say as long as many as four centuries, where there wasn't really a prophetic voice in Israel. You have John now appearing. He's preaching like the Old Testament prophets. And, and uh, in many ways, he's got the pedigree to be a Messiah, right? Uh, his father is, is Zechariah, who is a temple priest. So we have um, a prophet who has a good pedigree. His father is tied into the religious institution, uh, which means his mother is also. Those were pre-planned marriages. And so you have his mother, who's also part of this very religious pedigree. Not only that, he's, he's born of a miraculous birth. And notice how Luke spends a lot of time telling us about John the Baptist's birth. Um, he's the one that t- gives us the story of Mary and Elizabeth meeting and, and, and Zechariah being uh, silenced and the, angel ta- the conversation between Zechariah and the angel. Uh, Luke begins, really, his gospel that way. Not just with the announcement of Jesus' birth, but with John the Baptist. He had the pedigree. He, he, was, he would have been a son of the temple priesthood. He had a miraculous birth from two parents in an old age, right? Like, that's like an automatic qualifier in the scriptures, right? Like, if you're Jewish and your folks are old and they have a baby, you're special, you know? Um, you're going to do something great. You see this uh, as early as, like, uh, Abraham and Isaac. You see it even in the story of... Um, of Samson, um, where there's like this announcement of you're going to have a, birth, a baby, even though you didn't know you was going to have a baby. We see it a few times. But John the Baptist says he has this as well. He can make claim to this. He has a, an out-of-season birth. Um, so yeah, I can see why they thought he was the Messiah, right? Like, he's got the goods. He's preaching a message of repentance. He's calling people back to the wilderness. He's reenacting Israel's narrative by calling them back to the Jordan where their story began as a nation, as they came out of Egypt and then eventually entered the promised land. He has the pedigree, um, being raised in a good priestly home. He knew the scriptures. He knew the, he knew the laws. He followed the laws. He was a Nazarite, which means he was like on the next level holy, didn't cut his hair, didn't even drink grape juice um, because he didn't want it to be accidentally fermented and, and, and somehow break that vow. So he is a great candidate for being Israel's Messiah. Part of the institution, has the pedigree, prophetic voice, miraculous birth, follows the law, and not just follows the law, but even adds extra laws on top of it and follows them by not cutting his hair, not drinking anything that may be fermented. And then on the other hand, we have Jesus. And some of you are already thinking, well, Jesus' mirac- birth was miraculous. Yes, Jesus had a miraculous birth, but let's be honest, it wasn't very socially helpful for him, right? Uh, He was born to an unwed um, young virgin uh, who claimed she had uh, not been with Joseph or any other man, but that God had literally made her pregnant, that God had done something in her, the Holy Spirit had came upon her and had done something miraculous in her. So it really wasn't socially helpful for him. And Jesus' baptism story precedes the genealogy of Jesus and Luke. So Matthew begins with a genealogy. Luke waits and shares this genealogy a little later. Unlike Matthew's genealogy, Luke's genealogy focuses on the men and not the women of Jesus' line. Um, And we often pass over 
Luke's genealogy, because, well, let's be honest, we don't read any genealogy. Like, who does that? <laughs> Especially if you're reading King James Version. Say begat over and over and over again. See how that works out for you. Um, so Jesus' baptism directly precedes Luke's uh, recounting of Jesus' genealogy. And what's interesting about Luke's genealogy of Jesus is that it is filled with a long line of men who, despite great courage at times, had deep personal flaws, competing interest, and fragile heroism, the men in Jesus' genealogy. In fact, the lowest branch of Jesus' family tree, like where it begins at, in, in verse 23, if you look at that, in verse 23, it says, he was the son, and then there's a parenthetical statement, as was thought, of Joseph. So like even the lowest branch of his genealogy isn't that firm, right? Uh, there's a parenthetical note to it. He was the son of Joseph. Well, that's what everybody thought anyway. Um, and then it ends, the, the very last branch mentioned of the family tree, Jesus' genealogy, uh, it ends with the tragic paradox citing Seth as the son of Adam, which connects Jesus to the original Adam. And Jews understood Seth to be the replacement child for Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. So even from front to end, even bookended, Jesus' genealogy isn't like a great pedigree. It's not wonderful. It begins with a question on who, who his father really is. And it ends with the reality that he comes from a line of murderers. The original sin of murder. Uh, Carol Lakey Hess kind of talks about this point a little bit in one of the commentaries on Luke and she said it best, so I just want to read what she said. Jesus was born from, as well as into, a world of systemic sin. And his baptism is a signal that he understood the full implications of the incarnation. He was not merely identifying with or showing solidarity with the human's world. He was fully acknowledging its tragic structure. There are no innocent, no perfect, no unambiguous, no controllable, indeed no sinless choices in this world. All choices must be made with the context of a system that proceeds and impinges upon them. In other words, the incarnation itself for Luke at least, is not like necessarily just this divine golden baby with a halo on his head being born into the world, being completely different from everyone else. But rather his incarnation was so full that even his lineage was full of paradoxes and tragic irony. And people who really, really, really screwed things up at times. And mess things up at times. And this is the way Jesus, uh, Luke is envisioning or imagining the incarnation. And when we look at the events of Jesus' baptism, Jesus is not singled out for a baptism spectacle, as my picks papers led me to believe. In fact, in Luke's narrative, he's in line with everybody else, going through the same water. 
He was baptized with all the people. And you know what? In Luke's narrative, John's not even around. John's in prison somewhere. He's somewhere, at least, at least in the narrative that is thrown in there. It's mentioned. Now, that's, I'm not saying John wasn't necessarily there, but I'm saying in Luke's narrative, the presence of John is not mentioned. In fact, Luke makes a point in the middle of this story to insert the fact that at some point, John was thrown in prison and was no longer part of the movement anymore. He was put there and he was tucked away, and that was kind of the end of, of John's ministry. And we see this especially in the book of John, not the same John, by the way, um, in the book of John, where, where Jesus, they have the, the disciples have these conversations of, okay, is John still leading this thing or is Jesus now leading it? And, and who should we follow and who should be the one doing the baptizing? He was just baptized with everybody else. John's presence is not mentioned in Luke. Um, in Luke, John is, is, is mentioned being in prison. And, and even the way in which the epiphany, by the way, this is one of the, uh, another epiphany, even in the way that the epiphany of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus as a dove, even the way that happens is different because in Luke's gospel, it isn't spontaneous. In Luke's gospel, it happens as Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying to God. By the way, in uh, Luke, Jesus prays a whole lot. He is the praying Messiah, which I think is important for us to know. And even the Spirit's descent is unique in Luke. The language that is used, if you look here at the Scriptures... The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form, but like a dove. In bodily form, but like a dove. Luke plays with incarnation in this way in his gospel a couple of times. Um, and the way he does it is that for Luke, the incarnation was God in bodily form, yes. But it represented or it was like something much more than just God in bodily form. In other words, it wasn't just uniquely God in bodily form. There was something about God being in bodily form that represented something even greater. And as the Holy Spirit descends, we see this, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove. Not as the dove or not just being the dove, but in bodily form, this very concrete way like a dove. And as we tie this, as we think about this in the way that Luke thinks about the incarnation, in many ways Luke is painting this picture for us that not only did God come in bodily form, but that because God came in bodily form, we are all reminded that we are made in God's image. That the incarnation is actually saying something greater than just the fact that God sent one man in bodily form, but as a call and a reminder to all humans that we have all indeed been made by God, bearing in our flesh and bones the marks of our Creator, and that as His children, in the baptism scene, we are His beloved. That as the baptized, we are God's beloved. And it happens within the context of prayer. In Luke, Jesus prays a lot, as I just said. Jesus' followers are encouraged to pray a lot. And when we read Acts, which is also written by Luke, it's a two-volume telling of the Jesus story, the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. And when we look at the book of Acts, in, Luke, in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we find that the early church, what were they doing when the Holy Spirit came? They were praying. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, and John, 
and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. So we see this enjoining of prayer, even as the early church seeks um, the coming of the Holy Spirit. What we have here is a post-apocalyptic revelation. Listen to this. What we have in Luke's retelling is a post-apocalyptic revelation that God can indeed be found outside of the religious institution. And not only that, but that God has always wanted to be found outside of the religious institution. Now I don't have time to preach it today, but something I played with. By the way, I've been doing a lot of, because Luke is like something I've never given a whole lot of time to, you're getting like the exploration of Daniel sometimes in these sermons, okay? All right. One of the things I explored this week is I went back and I looked at Ezekiel's imagining of the glory of God leaving the temple, right? And, and we see, you know, the wheel within a wheel and it, it goes, it's in the holy place and it moves out into the, uh, into the sanctuary and then it moves out beyond the walls and then it just gets up and leaves. And, and it's, in Ezekiel, it's this act of judgment, right? And in the New Testament, by the way, we're called to envision the ways in which God's judgment is also God's grace, that, that God's judgment is always good and, and, and restorative. Even the image of fire in the, in the New Testament. Fire is used to purify and to make things new and to, uh, to, to rekindle things. And it's almost like in Ezekiel's imagining of the glory of God leaving the temple, we always think of that as a judgment, right? Like the people weren't good enough and so God just got up and left and, and, and just hightailed it out of town. But, but there's something, maybe even an act of grace happening there. When we look at the New Testament, we see that as soon as Jesus dies, the, the veil is rent from top to bottom, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, and sons and daughters and Jews and Gentiles are poured into it. And in the book of Acts, it's messy. You've got Gentiles coming in and eunuchs, and all of these things are kind of happening, and people don't know what to do with it theologically because God's glory has moved out of just being in this one location, and God is now showing his glory to all people. That even in Ezekiel's vision, which the Jews thought of as a judgment, God's glory leaving the institution, God's glory leaving the temple and leaving the places in which it was thought that God's glory was confined was actually somewhat of a vision of God's grace and God's desire that God always wanted to get out of that place, right? Like he always wanted to bust out of those walls. Um, he never really intended to stay in them. In fact, God had some real problems with it. If you read some of David's conversations with God about the temple, you know, God was like, what am I supposed to live in a house built with human hands? What's that about? It was always God's desire to move away from just these institutionalized um, iterations of the presence of God and to move out and to reach those who, uh, who felt like they could not be included. And not just those who felt like they couldn't be included, but those who were literally told, you can't be included, Right? Those who are literally told by the institution, you're not good enough to be in the presence of God. The New Testament gives us a God who wants to break out of all of that and tell all of those who were once told you can't be part of what God is doing and you can't experience the goodness and the grace and the love and the presence of God like the holy people do. God comes out in Jesus, even in the incarnation, and just kind of blows all that out of the water, right? 
Jesus makes it a point to spend time with sinners, to, to eat at the tables of those that the temple pushed away and even society pushed away. And we see the Holy Spirit picking that mantle up right on in the book of Acts. But it begins here in the book of Acts chapter 1 with this emphasis on prayer and this revelation in Luke and Acts that God has always wanted to break out of the institutions that try to confine him. All right, y'all still tracking with me here? I know it's a lot. It's like an overload, or like a major download here. But that this is this is the impetus or, or or the locus of Luke's message. Not only that, but we see here in Luke's narrative that the Messiah comes from among many. Right? He doesn't like in Monty Python. You know, he doesn't just appear in the sky and talk. You know, that's not the way God does it. Um, but he comes out from among many. He stands in solidarity with the many. He comes from a messy genealogy. He's baptized along with everybody else, just walking into the water with everyone else. He comes from among many. He stands in solidarity with the many. He shows that God is accessible to the many and that God is pleased with the many. You are my beloved children. You're my beloved son. If we think of Jesus as being uh, somewhat of of a federal head of our of our human family, then we are all part of God's beloved. The locus of the Spirit's activity has moved. John himself declares that water baptism will be added onto by spirit baptism. And when we get to Acts and spirit baptism happens, it turns out the Spirit is wild and free. And the Spirit is so wild and free that religious folk don't know what to do with it. They're wringing their hands trying to figure out, well, who do we let in and who we don't? And, and at some point, Peter has to say, you know what, guys? We're just thinking that if God's baptizing them in the Spirit, who are we to deny them entrance into the community? If the Spirit has baptized them, who are we to say they cannot be baptized with water? Who are we to push them away? If God is tearing down the walls, who are we to start putting them back up again? Right? Post-apocalypse. Post-apocalyptic imaginings of what it means to follow Jesus and the Spirit. These narratives call us to look at the ways in which God is moving and how it is different from the ways in which we have previously imagined God would move. He's wild and free. He's falling on Gentiles and children and eunuchs and women and basically all those that the religious institution had once disqualified. Wow. It also provides for us, and I'm so glad that we read the the psalm from the lectionary this morning. Um, I want to tie that in just a little bit because the, the the psalmist talks about the holiness of God. But I think when we, when we look at Luke and actually the whole of the New Testament, we see that there's a new paradigm being provided for holiness. Some of you may remember a Chris Green sermon from a couple of years ago where Chris Green talked about this. Um, if you didn't see it, I'll try to share it on my Facebook or social media for those who have that. You can watch this sermon because, you know, it's Chris Green. He does a way better job at articulating it than I ever will uh, this morning. But, you know, Chris Green talks about this idea of holiness where it once meant being other or being sinless. That Jesus' recapitulation of what holiness means isn't that it means to be other or to be sinless But holiness now means that we see ourselves as part of God's larger whole. 
right? Like we're not just intentionally trying to be different or just intentionally trying to be a certain way so that we can be like God because God is different. It's like the lamest argument ever, by the way, for holiness. I always cringe when holiness folks say that, right? Like, we well, should dress this way because you should be different because God is different. Um, it, it just it doesn't make any real sense when you think about what the holiness of God looks like in the New Testament because Jesus went where holy people shouldn't have went. And he let people who shouldn't touch him touch him. And he touched people that he shouldn't have touched. And then in Acts, he gives his disciples permission to eat food, eat food they shouldn't eat with people they shouldn't eat with. And he ate with people he shouldn't eat with too. And, and did all these things that if, if he were a good holy person like the Pharisees should have said he should have been, they'd have never killed him in the first place, right? So there's a recapitulation and maybe even a redefinition of what holiness actually is. That God is not other because he sits outside somewhere eons away from who we are and what he has created. But God is holy precisely because he can hold his own creation within himself. And enter it and leave it at will. <laughs> as, as Zach said earlier, show himself to us at will. Reveal himself to us at will whenever he wants to. And even transcend and overcome the ways in which we imagine this creation working in the first place. Because this creation says when you die, you're dead. But Jesus says no, when you die, there's still resurrection possible. Right? This creation says when you're sick, you're sick. But Jesus says no, God still has the power to raise you up and make you whole and heal you. That there's, that, 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 that there's another narrative than just the one you've been handed and that's what makes God holy. And we see this in, in the Gospel of Luke, right? And in, and in, and in the book of Acts as well. A, a new paradigm for holiness. Rather than just being other or sinless, we now see that God made flesh, dwelt among us, was part of God's larger whole. Carol Lackey goes on and says, John the baptizer understood that Jesus would surpass him, and he did. By accepting John's baptism... Jesus refuted John's dualism between the wheat and the chaff. And I know some of you are like, you're going to talk about that more? Another sermon for another time, right? Let me read that again. By accepting John's baptism, Jesus refuted John's dualism between the wheat and the chaff. In fact, this led to accusations of him being a glutton and a drunkard. Later on in Luke, Luke chapter 7, verse 34. This led to accusations of him being a glutton and a drunkard. And I love this by Carol Lackey. Perhaps this is a major sign of holiness. That we see ourselves as part of an interconnected web. And that we are accused of being deeply enmeshed in that web. Wow. Perhaps this is a major sign of holiness. That we see ourselves as part of an inter interconnected web. And that we are accused of being deeply enmeshed in that web. Luke gives us a Jesus that doesn't exist within the confines of an institution. He gives us a Jesus that is part of the human family. With all of our messy family secrets and problems. Right? He gives us a Jesus who doesn't assume that he is somehow 
more special than everyone else, but a Jesus that gets in line with everyone else for baptism. A Jesus who by example shows us that God is not only found in the temple, but that God is found wherever we choose to pray and look for him. By the way, I think that's why prayer is such an important feature of Luke's gospel. Because in a post-apocalyptic world where people are going, where can God be found? Luke reminds us that God is close. All you have to do is just talk to him. He's not far away. That's why that passage in Acts is included, written by Luke. Paul's preaching. You thought God was far away, but God is not far away. You can talk to him. Prayer is enjoined with the pouring out of the Spirit, both in Jesus' account of baptism and in the early church. Because it's not a place we need to go to or a people we need to be around necessarily or an institution we need to, we need to identify ourselves with. Rather, it's in the reality of a God who desires to have communion with us, who desires to pour His Spirit out on us, who desires to love us, And that if we will just pray and seek, he's there. I'm going to say one more thing and I'm going to shut up because I think I've been on it. Where's my soapbox at, by the way? Um, going off script a minute here, but this morning, this, this, this word just kept like really digging into me a little bit. So I, I want to share it with you because I think, I think it goes right along with what we're talking about here. I've been working out lately. And which is why I probably walk around like I'm 80 years old this morning, if you're wondering like, why I'm doing that. Because um, I feel 80 years old and I hurt all over. Uh, walking out of the Y the other day, you know, the Y uh, lots of times has different Bible verses posted around. And the, the verse from Matthew where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a great net that is thrown into the sea. And it catches every kind of fish and pulls it onto the boat. And I was thinking about that as I left in that week. And now that so many of our imaginings of evangelism and even God are more like worm and hook kind of fishing. Uh, we like to call it bait and switch. <laughs> oh, it's a worm. Oh, no, it's not. I'm going to have to like do all these things now. You know, fight for my life. Die. Be crucified with Christ. And it's scary, right? It's like, oh. Don't bite the worm. And some of you have been in church so long, like you're having PTSD right now, even thinking about that, because that's kind of the way Jesus presented. Hey, he's out here. If you want him, come take a bite. But be ready when you take a bite. It's on, you know. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is like. God's grace isn't bait and switch. God's grace is a force to be reckoned with. It's a force to be reckoned with. And I don't care where your soteriology's at, right? And uh, I'm firmly Wesleyan in my soteriology. So I'm not saying anything of that nature. But no matter where your soteriology at, no matter how you imagine how God saves us, you have to admit that if it weren't for the fierceness and the power of God's grace, right? Where would we be at? And the kingdom of heaven is like a great net 
going out and pulling in all kinds of fish. Folks, that's the way Luke gives us to imagine what God is doing in the incarnation and what God is doing in Christ. In many ways, Jesus is God's big net. Reminding us of who we are in God, who our creator is and what we were made to be and how we can live. How we can reflect the Imagio Dei, the image of God. And a lot of it's a mystery and I wish I had all the answers But i got to tell you this morning, I'm thankful that that's the kind of grace that pulled me into this thing. Amen? Stand with me and we'll be dismissed. We'll receive communion. If our servers will get ready. One of the ways in which we participate in the narrative of the gospel is by receiving communion. By gathering around the table, and we believe that in some mysterious way, through the work of God's Spirit, that Christ is present with us as we receive the bread and the fruit of the cup. So all of you are invited this morning. The great net has been thrown out. You're all invited. Fish of every kind. Good fish, bad fish. Mean fish, nice fish, fair fish, unjust fish, all kinds of fish. So don't not come this morning because you feel like you're not good enough. And don't come because you feel like, well, if I come, then I have to like, you know, do all these things that I'm just not ready to do yet. But come and taste and see that he is good. Come and taste and see that he is good. Come and see that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come and see that his grace is sufficient for you. Come and see that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Come and see that he has been touched with all of your infirmities, that he has experienced what you've experienced, that he is acquainted with your grief. Come and see that he is good. Come and see that God is love. Come and see. Come and see that death is not the end of the story. Come and see that there is good news out there. Come and see. We'll read the invitation together. You're welcome to come and receive from the table this morning. We'll also have some prayer partners up here. If you need prayer for anything at all, our partners would love to pray with you. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it's the Lord who invites you, and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.